So as we're continuing through the Sermon on the Mount this morning, uh, last week we, we saw the introduction to that sermon. We saw the, the Beatitudes. Uh, we walked through those eight um, kind of characteristics of what is a disciple, not the calls to things that you need to do uh, so much as things that we are. It will result in us living that way. It will result in us doing those things, but it's, it's not a list to make ourselves better. It's a declaration by God that this is what he's already done for us. Um, as we, we look at that list last week, we noted how um, these things are, are seemingly paradoxical. They don't seem like they, they fully make sense. Uh, they seem like, you know, for us, we take them for granted because we're somewhat familiar with them. But if, if we understood just how these things seem to contrast each other, it, it kind of jumps out as, as almost being nonsensical. If I could, could reword some of them and, and maybe help us see just the, uh, the, the, the distinction there. But if we think of you know, just the first one, blessed are the poor, for they are rich. Blessed are those who mourn, for they have reason to celebrate. Blessed are the defeated, for they are victorious. Blessed are the hungry and thirsty, for they are full and satisfied. The, the statements are just a paradox. They don't, they don't make sense by, by earthly standards. And we don't tend to think of some of those things as blessed, as we, as we talked about last week. Now, I, I reworded some of those just to kind of hit us with that punch of how those are, are a little bit different and strange for us. But the final beatitude in that list from last week, we're going to see that Jesus expands a little bit upon that in our passage this morning. But I don't even have to change it in order for us to see the paradox in, the, in, this, in this last beatitude. This last one, he says, are blessed are those who are persecuted. And I think when we hear that, it just automatically strikes us as something that sounds strange. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And we might think, really? Blessed are those who are persecuted? Like, blessed are those who are fired from their job because they won't cut corners or do something unethical? Blessed are those who fail their essay assignment because they write about God creating man and woman and not having evolved and, and or originated through a big bang. Blessed are those who are mocked for devoting their Sunday mornings to gather together to worship God and, and hear his word preached. Blessed are those who are arrested because of their faith in Jesus. Blessed are those who are unable to, to see their family because if they return to their family, they'd be bound by honor to have to, to kill them because they've converted to Christianity. Blessed are those who are beaten and tortured and, and encouraged to deny their faith in Christ. Blessed are those who are killed because of their faith in Christ. Is that really what blessing looks like? From an earthly perspective, it strikes us because it's not how we tend to think of, of blessing. It's a paradox in Jesus' day just as much as it's a paradox in our day. And especially, I think, in an American culture that values liberty and, and religious expression, uh, not only do we tend to resist the idea of persecution, but we think of it as a, not as a blessing, but as a curse. But this ca passage calls us to flip our understanding upside down. Uh, much as the sermon would have done in, in Jesus' day, it's, it's a call to see that there's, there's in, in Jesus' view, there's something different that makes us blessed than what, the earth, than what the world would say makes us blessed. Maybe rather than viewing our religious liberty as, as something worth dying to protect, Perhaps we should consider the greater blessing would be to die for Jesus' sake and to give up our religious liberty. In today's passage, we are going to see a, a call to live for Jesus in light of, of these beatitudes, these characters, these marks of a disciple that Jesus has set out. We're called to live in light of that. And, and when we do, we're going to see that there are two responses to that. There's two responses to the way that we live for Jesus. So let's look at our, our passage here in Matthew 5, 11 to 16. I want to start in, in verses 11 and 12, which 
you might already be thinking, why are we talking about those this week? Because doesn't this really tie into the Beatitudes from last week? Uh, We see that the verse 11, thematically anyway, ties into verse 10. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. They they fall in most of your Bibles under that same heading, the Beatitudes. Um, Some of them might even link verses 11 to 10 in just one long list of, of Beatitudes that are here. Uh, but I think there's, there's a, a good reason to, to see these things as a little distinct from one another. Um, verse 11 doesn't follow the same format that verse 10 does and, and the other Beatitudes. They were written in the, or, or expressed in uh, a third person. Blessed are those uh, all throughout that. Uh, whereas Jesus changes the way he speaks here in, in verse 11, and he starts addressing the crowd directly in the second person. Not just blessed are those generically, but you are blessed. And we see that, we'll see that three times, that you are statement in this passage this morning, which I think is what helps us understand that, that we can see how these things are linked to these next verses. But in verse 11, you are blessed. In verse 13, you are the light, or sorry, you are the salt. And in verse 14, you are the light. We're going to see that repeated throughout this passage this morning. So, so why are these things uh, linked? I think we'll see that as we, we unfold throughout this passage. But, but as we look at these first verses... This is what Jesus says as he expounds upon the last beatitude. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we unpack those three verses, I just want us to think about three things. First, the way we will be persecuted. Second, the reason we should be persecuted. And third, the response to our persecution. So first, we see that there, there's a specific way that Jesus is addressing that they will be persecuted, that these persecutions will come upon them. Uh, and that is through insult, through persecution, and through, as they falsely say, every kind of evil against you. Essentially, they break down into two categories, that there is the, the physical side of persecution, and then there's also a verbal side of persecution, Obviously, when in our minds, when we think of persecution, we, we go to the, the physical aspect of things, and we think, well, we're not really being persecuted, at least here in America, definitely not the way that, that others are. But not all persecution is the same, but as, as we consider the physical aspect of that, while we may not live under that threat, it is a reality for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that they face this physical persecution on a daily basis. According to one study, one in eight Christians worldwide are under and facing high, level, high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith in Christ. This study found that on average, every day around the world, 13 Christians are killed for their faith. 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. 12 Christians are unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. And five Christians are, are kidnapped or abducted because of their faith. That's happening every day around the world. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing persecution because of their, their belief in Christ. Here in America, we, we can tend to be removed from it, removed from the reality that there, there is a physical price to following Christ that many are, are paying around the world. And again, we may not face that here, but it's a, a sobering reminder to, to recognize that it is something that many are facing. At the very least, it should lead us to, to keep our brothers and sisters in prayer and recognize that there is a cost, even today, even in a, what we think of as a, a more civilized world, to following Christ. So that's the first category, is, is the persecution, the physical attacks. For us, maybe, we face more of the verbal attacks, the insults, 
those that falsely say every kind of evil against us. Jesus doesn't distinguish here as far as one level of persecution being uh, less insignificant than the other. You are blessed when they persecute you in these ways. I think just one, one side note to this is when we tend to, to not recognize that we are being persecuted, I think we, we miss out on recognizing that Jesus has said you are blessed because of it. And we tend to immediately dismiss the fact that we're not persecuted because we're not facing the physical side of persecution. And we fail to recognize that there's other forms of persecution. Jesus specifically mentions physical and verbal. There's maybe other forms of just being shunned, of not getting that job promotion, of not being able to, to get the things that uh, same opportunities as you're discriminated against because of your faith. Uh, those are forms of persecution, and you are blessed as you face that. So we don't want to just dismiss it because I think we miss some of what Jesus is encouraging us here in that we are blessed. But just on that, on that same side note, we don't want to turn every moment into persecution either and just turn things into a pity party for ourselves. That's not the point either. Um, but as we understand that, that there are different forms of persecution, that it will look different for each of, each of us, maybe we see that we are more under the, the verbal uh, attack of persecution. Maybe it's the people that are making a comment about us at, at our workplace or at school. Uh, maybe it's the people that are talking behind your back, gossiping about you, saying things about you, um, putting you down, making fun of you. Uh, maybe it's that they, they intentionally say things that they know will, that, that you don't approve of. They use language that they know you don't like. These are, are ways that they might be seeking to persecute you because of your faith in Christ, seeking to use words to attack you because of what you believe. Those are insults. Notice Jesus also says when they falsely say every kind of evil, which, as, a, as another side note, we need to recognize that if we're going to be persecuted because people are saying things about us, hopefully it is because they are falsely accusing us of evil, not because we're actually participating in evil things. As Christians, we're, we are supposed to be standing apart for Christ. And it's, so it should never be that a Christian is being persecuted or, or that things are being said verbally about a Christian, aligning them with evil that are true. If anything, it should be a false statement. But what does that look like? I, I think there's a couple of examples I could give. So falsely speaking, evil against a Christian might look like saying that a Christian who isn't willing to break the law or cut corners at work or do unethical things, that maybe an unchristian employer fires them because that, that person's just unloyal. They're not committed to their workplace. That's falsely speaking evil against that person. The person is being loyal to Christ, not necessarily to breaking the law. Well, maybe a, truthfully speaking, evil might look like a Christian who's at the workplace, but just isn't a hard worker and they're, they're not putting their time in. And maybe they're saying, well, God has other things for me to do with my time, or he wants me to share the gospel with this person, or, you know, he's, he's going to bless my work later and I'll, I'll get it done. And, and they get fired because they're just not a good worker. Well, in that sense, I, I think there's, you know, maybe they're linking the two together that because they're sharing the gospel with, with every person that they meet, that they're being persecuted for Christ, I would say, well, maybe there's a, a way that we're called to live in the world that still honors our employer and is able to honor Christ at the same time. We could think of maybe those that are falsely speaking evil might look like a Christian who, who boycotts abortion or is, is speaking out against it. And, and they're being maligned because there's someone saying that they, just, that they are oppressing women and, and don't want to allow women the, the right to choose what to do with their own body. 
Truthfully speaking, evil might look like a Christian who physically attacks an abortion clinic or an abortion provider, physically harming people, as, as they also say that every, every unborn child is a, a life that has the right to protection. Those things are just hypocritical, and it, it would be true in one sense that that person is being hateful and intolerant. So if we are going to be persecuted because of evil, let it be because it's, people are falsely declaring the evil deeds that we're doing, not because they're speaking truth about us. Uh, it's interesting that uh, if, if you have time to read through the, the letter of First Peter, I think as, uh, throughout that whole letter, as, first, as Peter is explaining suffering in the world, I think you'll see that these thoughts from, from the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sure, are just reverberating through his mind as he expounds that. And in First Peter 3.17, he writes, It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If we're going to suffer, if we're going to be persecuted, let it be because we are pursuing Christ and we are representing him, not because we're pursuing evil. So the, the first thing we see here is that, that there is persecution that will come. We see these ways that it comes. Jesus is specifically, again, focusing on physical or verbal attacks. But second, let's consider the reason for persecution. Uh, he doesn't just say, blessed are those who are persecuted. In verse 10, he says specifically, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And in verse 11, he repeats it, gives a a reason, um, but he actually changes it. And I think that change is very significant. In verse 11, blessed are you when they persecute you because of me. He changes, and I think those that were listening would have agreed and understood, well, yes, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness. But who is Jesus to say, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me? If Jesus is just another good teacher, this doesn't make sense. Why, why would it be a blessing to be persecuted because of the teaching that this, this person is giving? Well, it doesn't make any sense. For us to be persecuted on behalf of someone, some person's teaching or, or something that someone else is teaching doesn't make sense. The blessing comes because, God, because of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the Son of God. Because Jesus has this authority to tell us these things. So many people in the world are persecuted, but not all people that are persecuted are being blessed. Many people are persecuted for for various reasons, religious beliefs, political beliefs, scientific beliefs, environmental beliefs, economic beliefs. There's so many different things that people disagree with and will get persecuted for. But that doesn't mean that every person is blessed because of that persecution. The blessing comes from being persecuted because of Jesus. And it's because of who he is. Jesus is righteousness. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is who God the father said he was just two chapters earlier at his his baptism when he declared that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's the reason that being persecuted for Jesus' sake leads to blessing. We need to make sure that we're not just being persecuted for the sake of persecution. We're being persecuted for other, other reasons. But this... This statement itself should just kind of leap out of the page to us as, as we're reading through this. As, as the Sermon on the Mount closes, Matthew in chapter 7, verse 29, acknowledges that the crowds were astonished by Jesus' teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. As we walk through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see the way that Jesus taught as one who has authority. But just this one verse right here rec- causes us to recognize that, that Jesus isn't teaching like other people. The other scribes weren't saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me. This, this should leap out at us, just as it, it should have leapt out at those that were listening to it that day. 
But before we move on, I think it's worth contemplating just for a moment. How can we mistake being persecuted because of Jesus with being persecuted because of other things? And sometimes it it might be difficult to see that unless we're willing to take the time to just examine our own hearts, even in the moment of of what's going on. But, But what do I mean by that? Well, sometimes maybe we're persecuted just because we're different, just because maybe we're, we're obnoxious or we're judgmental or being lazy or offensive. Maybe some people have in mind that Christians are just Bible thumpers that go around declaring judgment and condemnation on everyone and that they lack grace and mercy and forgiveness. Maybe that's the way we share the gospel and people just don't want anything to do with us because we don't extend grace and forgiveness, but we just extend wrath and judgment. And we tend to think, well, because I'm doing these things for Jesus' sake, I'm being persecuted. But maybe it's not Jesus that's being persecuted. It's just our personality that's being persecuted. Maybe it's because we're withholding the true gospel. We're not being gracious and forgiving and loving. Maybe we face persecution because of, it's our, because of our political views. We tend to elevate certain things to, to the same authority or status and of importance as the word of God. Maybe we have certain political views that others don't hold, but that God's word doesn't command that this is the way you have to do things. And we tend to to just elevate those things and and get disagreement or persecution because our views are different than others. Or maybe it's persecution because we just want attention for ourselves. We like the the pity that we get when when it seems like we're being persecuted. We want to, to cause trouble and stir the pot, or we want to prove a point or make it look like we're the victim. Maybe we jump on certain bandwagons and just try to identify with other things or people just to get uh, that persecution. And, and we're really just seeking attention for ourselves versus seeking the glory for God. I think those are, are some ways. Uh, hopefully it's, it's not things that, that we're struggling with, just, but it can happen. That we can mistake persecution for other things besides Jesus and think that we're being persecuted because of Christ. There is blessing that comes from being persecuted for Jesus' sake, but let's make sure that he is the one we're being persecuted for and not not our own agendas and personalities. So we see there's a means through which persecution comes. There's both physical and verbal. There's a reason for our persecution. It should be for Jesus' sake. But then there's a response to persecution. So in verse 12, Jesus gives us a response, which again, this is one of those turn, turn things upside down. What is our response to persecution? Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. And if we're honest, this is not the first thought that comes to our mind when we're facing persecution. Oftentimes, we are not rejoicing and happy that these things are coming upon us. Maybe some of the first things we struggle with are, are just getting frustrated that things are difficult or not working out the way that we wanted to. Maybe we get angry at our persecutors. We're upset that they would do this to us or that there are people like this in the world. Maybe we, we, again, we, we, we are upset that there's people that were formerly our friends, our former employers, our, our coworkers, teachers, those with different political views. And, and our initial thought is like, we want to just get them back. We want to prove our point. We want to show them to be wrong. Maybe we can tend to struggle with bitterness, bitterness towards God of just, why is this happening to me? Like, God, I'm doing what you want me to do. And yet I'm being persecuted. I'm struggling with all these things. Why are people opposing me? But Jesus says that our response in the midst of of persecution should be to be glad and rejoice. And it isn't a natural response. Again, it continues this paradox, this way of Jesus' teaching that just doesn't make sense. And it continues what he's showing us in the Beatitudes. You know, you are blessed if you are persecuted. 
But it's because there's a reason to rejoice. It's because of the reward that we have in heaven. And ultimately, that reward is Christ himself. It's not just that we get to go to heaven, though, though we do, but, but we get to be with Christ for eternity. There is a reward for us that far outweighs all of the earthly suffering and persecution that we might face. So you might suffer loss here on earth because of Jesus. You might suffer difficulties, dirty looks, bad grades, mispromotions, maybe even time in prison or even death. But there is a reward waiting in f- for you in heaven that far exceeds whatever loss you might experience here on earth. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, 18, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And if we're thinking, well, that was just the Apostle Paul, like he was much closer to Jesus. He had a relationship with him, a physical sense of a relationship with him. Well, of course he could endure that. But consider what Paul suffered and endured. This wasn't someone who didn't know persecution. In the midst of the persecution, he says, this is a momentary light affliction. Here's what what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 as he lists some of the persecution that he faced. With far more labors, many more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes, minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, with cold and without clothing. Eventually, Paul would be sentenced to death and beheaded in Rome because of his faith in Jesus. Yet in all of this, Paul calls it a momentary light affliction. And why? Because he's looking to things that are unseen, not to things that are seen. He calls it an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. That's what he's fixing his eyes on. And so in the midst of intense persecution, Paul is able to rejoice in the midst of it. And that's why for us, when we're facing persecution, whatever that might be, whether it is the physical persecution or whether it's the the verbal persecution, the insults, the, the false accusations, In the midst of that, we can be glad and rejoice as well because there's a far greater reward waiting for us in heaven. From these verses here, we learn that living for Jesus leads to persecution. This isn't a maybe. Jesus says all throughout his teaching that that if, if he's been persecuted, you will be persecuted. This is going to happen. It's not a matter of if it happens. It's a matter of when or how or how frequently. Living for Jesus leads to persecution. It shouldn't surprise us. He gives the example that just as they they persecuted the prophets, they're going to to persecute us. We see that they persecuted Jesus himself. Why would they do anything different to his followers? Living for Jesus leads to persecution. But as we we turn our focus or continue on through the passage here, look at the next couple of verses. Continue on in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. These phrases, you are salt and you are light, are pretty well-known metaphors. 
Um, but I think with them, Jesus is making the same, same point. Um, so even though there's, there's many things that have been written and said about these, I, I want to focus uh, on, on what they share in common. But let's briefly consider each one uh, on its own first. But first, you are the salt of the earth. Again, there's, there's much that's been said. What is salt? What makes it salty? All of those sorts of things. Uh, we could definitely, I think, maybe take some, some principles out of those, those metaphors that salt is used as a preservative. It enhances taste. It makes one thirst. And we could maybe find some application to those things. That as Christians, we are supposed to uh, act as a, a preservative to the culture around us. That our influence is going to keep things from getting worse as, as Christ works through us to influence the culture. We can add flavor to, to the world around us, that our, our actions are to be seasoned with, with salt, that they should be gracious and, and compassionate, that they should see a difference in us. As we represent Christ, just as salt gives that flavor and that thirst, that we can make others thirst for Christ. Uh, and so in each of those ways, we can recognize that, that we're not the one saving and influencing, that, that God's using us in the culture. But, but I think more than those individual implications, I think what, what Jesus is getting at, especially as, as we see his light metaphor, is that salt is distinct and it's noticeable. When there's salt in food, you know it. Uh, maybe if some of you have ever been cooking and you mistaken salt for sugar, or you get those things mixed up where you put in too much salt, it's something you notice. It doesn't just slide under the radar and, and you know, that you just kind of think, well, next time I'll just try to not, not mess that cup and teaspoon up. But you notice salt. Even just a little bit. It doesn't take much. You don't often need a cup difference either. Just putting a little bit of extra salt on your, your food, you can notice that it's, it's there. And I think that's, that's the point Jesus is making. You notice salt. It's distinct. It stands out, and it's noticeable. Now, he, he gives these examples. He says when salt is, loses its taste, how can it be made salty? I, again, I, I don't think, I mean, maybe there's a principle here in the sense that we're, we're called to, to be salt and that we should stand out and we don't want to lose our saltiness. But his point is salt doesn't lose saltiness. You can't have a substance which is salt and have it not be salty. It just, it will be noticeable. It will stand out. And if, some, if salt isn't salt, how do you make it salt again? You don't. You don't turn the salt back into salt. Now, it's also interesting that, that this word, when, when Jesus says salt that's lost its taste, is also used other places in the Bible. It has a double meaning that it can be losing its taste or being made foolish. And, and elsewhere, Paul, Paul likens salt to, to a metaphor of being wise. You know, if we're supposed to be wise in the world and we're foolish, we're not being distinct and noticeable. Instead of being wise and having salt, being salty and standing distinct, this salt, he's saying, is now foolish and tasteless and blends in. It's just not salt. But similarly, let's consider you're the light of the world. So once again, what's significant about light? Like it's distinct. Once there's light, there's not darkness. You don't walk into a lit room and unsee the light. You, you can't not see that it's there. It just does its thing. It gives light and it, it makes things visible. It's not something that can be hidden. Jesus gives two examples. First, a city on a hill that can't be hidden. When you see the lights on houses on the top of a city, you can't hide it. You can't unnotice it. It's going to be distinct from the landscape around us. It's going to be visible. But on a smaller scale, he says, well, what about in a house? 
You don't light a light and then cover it up. The whole point of it is to give light, to expose the darkness. So you don't, you don't cover those things up. You're, you're defeating the purpose of what it exists. Now, again, I, sometimes we can tend to think of this metaphor and say, well, we need to be light. Don't cover your light. But Jesus says no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. His point is it doesn't happen that way. You don't light a light and then cover it. So, so what do we see from these two metaphors? We learn that living for Jesus leads us to being noticeably distinct. And that is our main point for, for this, uh, this passage as we're, we're looking at this today, that, that living for Jesus leads us to be noticeably distinct. Salt is noticeable, and it often doesn't take much to, to be noticed. Light is noticeable. It stands apart from the darkness. And again, it doesn't take much light at all for us to see that, that darkness doesn't exist. That's what we're called to be, is to be salt and light, to be noticeably distinct. So this is why I think verses 13 to 16 tie into verses 11 and 12. Why is it that we face persecution? Because we're living in a manner that is noticeably distinct. We're living in a way that's reflecting that we are salt and light in the the world, that we are, that Christ is in us, and people see that. And those that hate Christ are going to hate us, and we'll be persecuted because of him. There's a flavor, there's a light that causes us to stand out. But ultimately, it's not just, it's not just us that's, that's standing out. It's Christ. We can think of even the, the song that we sang. Um, we are salt, we are light, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Christ is hopefully who they're seeing. Christ is who is the salt. Christ is who is the light that's, that's giving a thirst to the world, that's giving light in the darkness that they're seeing him through us. So I think the reason that that it's important and significant that Jesus talks about this right after talking about persecution is because if if we're thinking about persecution, our our initial tendency in our our sinful flesh and and pride and our fear of of facing these sorts of things would, would probably be to try and maybe tone down how we stand out and how we're noticed. To think, well, maybe I'll just try to, to blend in a little bit more of the world. I don't want to stand out like a sore thumb and have people persecuting me. But Jesus says, no, you should stand out. You are salt and light. You will stand out. You can't help it. It's just what you are. Others will notice you. And that's the point. You're to be salt and light in the world. You don't want to lose your saltiness. You don't want to cover the light. because That's not the purpose. No one wants tasteless salt. No one wants dark lights. They just don't exist. They aren't a thing. We are going to look noticeably distinct as we live this way because Christ is doing a work in us and we will stand out. And I, I just want to note that it requires an emphasis on both parts of that phrase, noticeably distinct. We need to be distinct. We need to be holy and set apart from the world. So perhaps that looks like not using the language that, that others around us are using. People notice that we just talk differently. We think differently. We talk about different things. We don't talk about certain things. Maybe it's not watching the movies and TV shows that everyone else is watching, not feeling like we have to be in the know of every hit TV show that's out there just so we can talk to to our friends at school or our coworkers. Maybe it's not going to the parties everyone is going to. Maybe it's maintaining the purity when a culture around us is saying that anything goes. You can be whoever you want to be. It's making decisions for your family that that cause you to, to stand out. Maybe it's coming to church on a Sunday morning when the rest of the world is sleeping in and going to sporting events. It's sending your kids, maybe making the decision to say you're not going to send them to public school because you're, you want to put them in a, a place where 
they're going to have godly influence around them. Maybe it's just not being able to do certain things because you're not willing to give in and and cave to the pressures of society to endorse certain agendas or things. And because of that, it excludes you from from doing things that you might want to do. There are many ways we can be distinct from the world. but, But again, it's not just about being different. It's about being set apart for Christ. There are many things we could do just to be different. But the point is to be set apart for Christ. But note, we need to be noticeably distinct. I'm not really sure why, but Pastor Ryan keeps joking about moving out to Idaho to a compound somewhere out there and isolating ourselves from the world. And that would be distinct, but it wouldn't be noticeable unless it happens to make the news for some reason. But it's, it's not what we're called to do. We're not called to just isolate ourselves from the world and just come to church on Sunday morning and only fellowship with other believers and then go home and not interact with anyone. We are called to be noticeably distinct. And so what does that look like, being noticeable? Well, it means engaging with the culture around us. We're not, we're not supposed to hide from it. Yeah, we don't want to em- embrace it and we don't want to become like it, but we're not supposed to hide from it. Perhaps it's getting your kids involved in town leagues so that you can rub, rub elbows with the other parents and, and kids that are, are there. Maybe it's getting to know the neighbors around you, even though they don't talk about the things that you talk about or have the same political views, or maybe they use language that's a little rough. And, and we recognize, though, that there's a way that we can, can engage with those around us. Maybe it's also verbally sharing your faith. You know, there will be times when if you're going to share the gospel, you need to actually open your mouth and share the gospel. Living in a way that is distinct only does part of the work of showing that what the gospel is. It might raise the questions and give you the opportunities to have the conversation, but faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. And when you share your faith, it's going to stand out and people are going to hear and notice. Maybe it's just the little things. It's just praying before a meal and bowing your head. Maybe it's you're at school and, and you just... You take a moment to pray when everyone else just digs into their food. And that stands out. You're noticed because you're taking the time to pray. As salt and light in the world, we are meant to be noticeably distinct. We need to stand out because we look like Christ. People need to see Christ in us. But there's another implication here that I think we often miss because we're focusing on how, do we be sal- how, how should we be salty and how should we be, be bright? How should we have light? And, and that is that in both of these metaphors, these are inanimate objects. Salt doesn't make itself salty. Light doesn't make itself light and bright. Someone puts the salt on the food. Someone lights the light and puts it up there. And we are salt and light, not because we decided to become salty and we decided to become light, but because someone has made us that way. Just like these beatitudes, these are pronouncements. This is what you are. This isn't what you need to do in order to, to be saved. This is the blessings that come upon you because of what Christ has already done for us. In the same way, he is the one that makes us salt and light. This isn't just saying, go out and try and do these works, try and be salty, try to be light. It's because God has already done that work in our hearts. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. This is what God has done in us. In Ephesians 5, 8, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is God's work, not, not through us working out these things or making ourselves salty or making ourselves light. This is what God has done for us through faith in Christ. It's by his grace. And that should guard us against pride or looking down on others or thinking I'm saltier than other people, I'm brighter than other people. Whatever we have, 
It's from Christ. It's from God. It's, it's his mercy and his grace towards us. And those that aren't salty and those that are darkness need the same mercy and grace that we needed. Rather than looking down with, with condemnation and judgment, it should lead us to love and compassion to say we want to go out and we want to be that salt that's going to lead them to Christ. We want to be that light that is going to shine the light of the gospel in their hearts. Ultimately, that God is shining it through us, but, but we're, not, we're not seeking to hide it because we want to keep others from it. But we want to reveal to others what God has done for us and that he can do the same for them. We will be noticeably distinct. But finally, we recognize that, that noticeably distinct can lead to persecution, will lead to persecution. But it's not all that it, it leads to. Look at, at the final verse here in our passage in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Yes, some will see you living for Jesus. They will see you being noticeably distinct and they will persecute you. But others will see you living for Jesus and they will give glory to your Father in heaven. There's two distinctions here. There's two ways that people will respond to seeing Christ in us. So from this, in our final point there, we learn that living for Jesus leads to glorifying our Father. And this is essential to understand. As we seek to shine our light before others, the goal is to bring glory to God, not ourselves. Throughout the rest of the, the Sermon on the Mount, later on, Jesus is going to give instructions on how to give and how to pray, things that he's kind of confronting the Pharisees on and saying, don't do these things in front of others for your own glory. But yet here he's saying, do these good works. Let your light shine. Let people see and notice. Well, why the distinction? Because here in verse 5, the goal is glory to our Father. What he talks about and confronts later is, is glory for yourself. Our goal in doing these works and letting our light shine is that they would see that this is Christ in us and that they would give glory to our Father in heaven. And Jesus is the one who gives us an example of what does it look like to live in this way. Jesus came and lived as salt and light in the world. John 1, 4 to 5 says, In him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Jesus was the light of the world. Jesus knew what it was to live in a way that stands noticeably distinct from the culture around him. He knows what it's like to be persecuted because of how he's living for the glory of God. And he knows what it's like to be able to glorify God through living in a manner that, that shows God's work and, and shines that light. But more than just setting an example for us, Christ has, through his, his life, or through being the light of the world, he has given the life to us. In him was life. In, in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. How is it that we do these good works to the glory of our Father in heaven? It's because we've been made children of God through Christ. When, God, when, or when Jesus tells us to do good works, it's not so that we'll be saved. It's in response to being saved through faith in him. He, he's done that work for us already. He's lived as the light in the world, dying on, for our sins in our place, taking the wrath of God upon himself so that when we believe in Jesus, he gives us life. He gives us that light that shines through us. They're not things to do to be saved. These are marks of a disciple of Jesus, one that has already been saved. So if you've not believed in Jesus, you're not salt of the earth. You're not light of the world. You will not be noticeably distinct from the world because you're still in the world and of it. You can't make yourself salty. 
You can't make yourself light, but Jesus can. If you repent of your sins and believe in in Christ, he gives you that light and that life through him. But if you have believed in him, you're called to live as salt and light in the world. Shine your light so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What does this noticeably distinct life look like? I think it looks like what Jesus has just been explaining in the Beatitudes. It looks like someone who is poor in spirit, someone who mourns for their sin, someone who is humble and meek, someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, someone who is merciful, someone who is pure in heart, someone who is a peacemaker, and yes, someone who rejoices and endures in suffering and persecution. Ultimately, they should see Christ in us and glorify God because of it as we live in a way that is noticeably distinct. And yes, living a distinct life might lead to persecution, but it's something that we risk because we don't know when shining our light is going to lead to persecution and when it's going to lead to people having the light of the gospel shine in their hearts and give salvation and give glory to the Father. We're called to be noticeably distinct as we live as salt and light in the world. After the fire in Rome in AD 64, Nero placed the blame on Christians and used it as a reason to to persecute them. In addition to to killing Christians through crucifixion, through sending them to the Colosseum, where they met their deaths at the hands of gladiators and the mouths of lions, he also condemned some to death by fire. One way that he did this was through something that was called a Roman candle, where they would be tied to a stake, covered in pitch and oil, and then set on fire. As the early historian Tacitus noted, they were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. These early Christians were being persecuted and and even in death being mocked as the light of the world. Yet they truly were. They were the light of the world. Even the mocking couldn't take that away from from them and, and really shining their light through even the way that they faced this persecution and ultimately death. Tertullian was a Christian writer in the second century and And as he observed the persecution that was happening in his day and also over the last hundred years to the church at the hands of the Roman Empire, he made some observations. And as he addressed the Roman Empire, he wrote this. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who endured pain and death so long as they aren't Christian. Your casualties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. And you frustrate your purpose because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. What Tertullian observed is certainly a paradox by the world's standards. The more Christians they kill, the more Christians there are. Those who seek to stamp out Christianity frustrate their own purpose because they cannot prevail against God. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And when we live for Jesus, we will be noticeably distinct. At times, living for Jesus leads to persecution. But at other times, living for Jesus leads to people seeing our good works and giving glory to our Father in heaven. Either way, when we are persecuted or whether our life is a means God uses to shine the gospel into the heart of someone else, let us live noticeably distinct lives. Let's pray and ask God to help us live this way. Lord, we thank you that these are our blessings that you have given to us. 
Lord, in our own strength, we would recognize that to, to attempt to live this way, to live according to the standards of the Beatitudes, even to attempt to live as salt and light in the world, we would fail in our strength. To endure persecution and count it as a blessing, to rejoice and be glad, we would fail. Yet, Lord, we are thankful that, that you have gone before us, that you have done this for us, or that through your Spirit dwelling in us, that you are transforming us into the image and the likeness of your Son. Lord, we thank you that the, the salt that is in us, the light that is in us, comes from you. Lord, that you give us the ability to, to stand firm in the midst of persecution, that others might see our good works, and, and yes, possibly persecute us, but that some will give glory to our Father in heaven. Lord, we ask that as we continue to, to even face a, a culture that is changing, one that is even in America becoming more hostile to the gospel and to Christianity, Lord, that you would give us a boldness and a courage to be salt and light in the world, that we would live in a manner that is noticeably distinct to those around us. Lord, we pray we would do it for your glory and that you truly would be glorified through it, that Christ would be exalted, and that you would do this work in us and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.